Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for loading us up today. This is episode number 64 of The Next Track. It's going to be another one of our iTunes-related episodes. Today, we're going to have a look at how we use album artwork, as well as talk about some of my Apple script tools from DougScripts.com to help with finding and managing and exporting artwork. But before we get into our discussion, we want to thank Rogue Amoeba Software at RogueAmoeba.com for sponsoring this episode of The Next Track. And I'll have more to say about Rogue Amoeba's Loopback application that can, among other things, help you make your audio hijack recordings even more amazing. And we'll also have a special offer for Loopback users, so don't miss that. All right, Kirk? In last week's episode about Yes is Close to the Edge album, we talked for a few minutes about the album artwork by Roger Dean, very iconic type of artwork that adorned a number of Yes albums. And we discussed about how we would stare at this artwork and how we would appreciate the artwork and how the artwork represented a certain type of music. And, and our guest, Will Romano, even said at one point that Roger Dean's artwork inspired him to go out and buy other albums by bands he might not have bought otherwise. So we've gone from 12-inch LP album artwork, and then we went to 5-inch CD album artwork, which for older recordings was just the same artwork reduced. And then designers started making more specific CD artwork after the LP day was finished. But now we've gotten down to thumbnails for digital music. And, and while you can expand those thumbnails fairly large, they never get really bigger than that 5-inch size. It, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? We've lost an element of the music experience. Well, they certainly don't make contemplative album artwork like they used to anymore, and there's less of an opportunity to create, um, you know, intricate artwork with, with sleeve art and stuff like that. But it, artwork is still album artwork is still a, a branding tool and a marketing tool. But I don't spend nearly as much time uh, immersing myself in staring at albums like I did in my dorm days. But album artwork was always something that lets you identify an album at a glance. It would appear in an advertisement, but it would you'd see it in a record store. So it, it served the purpose of, of an icon to indicate what the album was. And of course, for us, as we went on and we got bigger record collections, the album artwork, when we were flipping through our LPs or in a bin in a record store, it was the artwork that would indicate what it was before we even pulled the record out or pulled it out of our shelves. Well, maybe that's part of it because, you know, you're actually touching a physical object so maybe the the appearance of it becomes more important to you now that we've got digital music well you can't really you know grab a digital file out of a bin and flip it around and examine the artwork it just doesn't work that way so with with digital music some of us are really artwork obsessed and they want artwork with all their music some people simply don't care and they get those sort of default itunes icons with the microphone or whatever it is I'm in the former camp. I think, Doug, you are too. Well, I'm kind of indifferent about artwork. I mean, for some of my favorite albums, I like to make sure that the artwork is right. But most of the time, I really don't like spending the time trying to make sure the artwork is right or looking for it or managing it. Unless the artwork is outrageously wrong or just looks bad, I really won't go out of my way to, uh, to curate my artwork. Well, one reason I like it is is I make a number of playlists that I display by album, and that way I can, at a glance, immediately know which album I'm looking at. Now, I don't always remember which artwork goes with which Grateful Dead live recording release, because there are dozens of them. And in particular, the Dick's Pick series had the same 
artwork. It was like an Ampex tape box with dates and locations on it. So they really weren't different. And, and a lot of live bands do that. They'll have the, the, something, they'll, they'll use a similar background for a number of recordings. But for me, it's a visual that lets me zero in on what I want to listen to. Well, maybe that's part of my problem with artwork because it just becomes another complex piece of information about an album that I have to be paying attention to. And I'd just rather not. I, you know, just give me the artwork that comes with the file, and I'm pretty much generally happy. And then I don't have to spend my time fishing around for it. Yeah, so how do you get album artwork? Well, if you buy digital music files, it almost always has album artwork today. There are some rare exceptions if you're buying directly from an artist, if it's some obscure label. But iTunes and Amazon and all the big sellers, they always include artwork. So you don't have to worry about that. If you rip your own CDs, then there's two possibilities. The app you use to rip the CDs may be able to get the artwork. And this is the case with iTunes. If you're signed into your iTunes Store account, if iTunes finds the album on the iTunes Store, it downloads the artwork. We'll discuss later that it doesn't embed the artwork in the files. We'll get to that in a bit. The other alternative is when you rip a CD and the artwork isn't available on the iTunes Store. And for example, all the Grateful Dead live recordings that aren't sold and, and aren't streamable, then you've got to find artwork someplace else and you have to download a file and then paste it into your audio files. Now, we'll obviously we're going to be talking about iTunes, but other apps have a similar way of doing this. You select all the files of an album, you press Command I, you click the artwork tab, and then you drag your artwork onto that tab, click OK, and iTunes embeds it in the file. Now, there are a couple of things to think of here. You don't want the artwork to be too small because if you're going to view it at a large size on a screen, either on your computer or even particularly on an Apple TV, which shows the, the album artwork at about half the height of the screen while it's playing something, if you have small artwork, it'll look fuzzy and it just won't look right. Apple uses 600 pixels by 600 pixels for their artwork. And I found that that's a good size. I remember back in the day when storage was expensive, I used 300, but I put 600 for everything. I don't see any need to go above 600. I find that that always displays just fine. Yeah, 600 works very well as the maximum. But as far as the low end, you can go below 300, um, 200, even 150. It depends on the player that you'll be playing it on, You know whether or not it supports... Uh, large or small artwork and size considerations. You know, do you have the space for this kind of stuff? Don't you have an Apple script that can sort audio files by the size of the artwork? I've got two, actually. Uh, I know the one you're talking about. The first one is called Size of Artwork, and it will display the thumbnail and the dimensions of the artwork for a single selected track. So you can just go through a bunch of tracks one at a time. The other one, the one you're referring to, is called Sort by Artwork Size, and it's kind of for obsessives only. It will scan a playlist of tracks or a selection of tracks and write the dimensions of the artwork of each track to the track's category tag, which typically is an unused music tag. So you'd see 600x600 or 300x300 or whatever the dimensions are. So thereby you can sort the tracks by the category column. Or create a smart playlist. Let's say you want to find all your artwork that's below 600 pixels. You can make a smart playlist where a category, well, no, it's not a less, it's not a more than, less than category, is it? Right. It's not a number or a Boolean. It's a text tag. So you'd have to say category contains 600. Or category does not contain 600. Right. So that would find everything that's not 600. Right. So you can't really do a more than, less than. So the best way would be, for example, category is not 600, then you sort by that column in a playlist. 
and you'll you'll get the sort order because it'll be alphabetical. So it would start at, at 1 and 200, 300, etc. However you decide to do it, the script makes the dimensions accessible so you can do something. So that's a good way if you want to go through your library and fix up your old artwork, try and find new artwork. There are a couple ways you can get artwork. You can just do a Google image search, but I'll put a link in the show notes to a website. A developer named Ben Dobson put up an iTunes artwork finder on his website. You can find artwork for anything sold on the iTunes store, not just music, but books and movies and apps. And you enter something, you choose a country, and you get the artwork. And what he does is he displays artwork at a couple of sizes. The iTunes store has 600 pixel artwork for everything, but for some music, it has 14 or 1500 pixels as well. Interestingly, when we submitted artwork for this podcast, the, the rules that Apple has are that it has to be 1400 pixels even though they don't provide that in the podcast itself, I think they want to have the larger artwork to rescale it if they have to. Right, because you never know where they're going to use it. Now, one of the reasons to not put artwork too big is because it takes up a lot of room. The storage space is less important now, but back in the day it was. And I know people who use like 1,500 pixel artwork, which in some cases takes up as much space as the audio file that it's embedded in. So another link in the show notes to a website called Image Optim. There's both a website where you can upload your graphics and there's a Mac app that you can download so you can drag and drop them on a Mac. What this does is it'll optimize image files in pretty much any format, uh, either PNG or, or JPEG or GIF or whatever. And it strips out unnecessary data. It doesn't affect the image quality. It just removes things that basically don't affect the image quality. I always do this when I'm scanning artwork and putting it into my stuff. I don't do it with iTunes store artwork, but I do do this with every single image that I put on my website because I want people to be able to load pages as quickly as possible. Yeah, I use the desktop app on image files whenever I'm going to upload anything, but also uh, if I'm going to apply artwork to uh, iTunes files. Um, it, it can really save a lot of space. Yeah, it depends on the file type. PNGs save 10 or 20%, but JPEGs often save like 50%. So that's a lot. So then we get to a sticky question in iTunes, and, and this is different in different apps, but where exactly is the artwork stored? Well, it's complicated. Um, I'm sure a lot of people expect that there is somewhere a folder that contains all their iTunes art, and all they have to do is find it and open it up, and voila, They'll have a, a, a ton of images. But the image files that are downloaded from Apple are, are encoded. And so you can't access them in the Finder or, or open them in any graphics app. But these downloaded files are stored in the album artwork folder in the iTunes folder of your music directory. And iTunes takes care of managing you know, what artwork file goes with what track, and you're supposed to rely on that. So you've got these image files all over the place that only iTunes can use and you can't do anything with. And the other place that artwork can be stored is in the audio file itself, embedded in its metadata, along with things like, you know, the track tags, artist, album, track number, disc number, things like that. MP3s and AACs can embed artwork. Wave and A files can't, although I think there are some WAV files that can embed artwork, and then there are some older versions of MP3s that can't embed artwork. Well, these, these are rare cases in my experience. For AAC files, the artwork is embedded in the files. For most MP3 files, it's the case as well. It, it's really only some weird MP3 files and, as you said, WAV and A files. And Apple lossless files can embed artwork too, Yes, right? they're embedded in Apple lossless files as well. Right. 
So it's great that audio files can have embedded artwork. That means the artwork travels with the file, and if you move them from one machine to another or from one player to another, you're guaranteed to get the correct artwork for that particular audio file. It's great. iTunes is supposed to embed the artwork when you apply it yourself to a track. Doesn't always happen. I want to say it happens about 90% of the time, Apple. Um, I know some people do have problems with making sure that the artwork stays where they put it when they use iTunes. It can be problematic. One thing to note is inside your iTunes folder, Doug mentioned earlier, there's an album artwork folder. And inside that is a cache folder. This cache folder keeps a cached copy of the artwork for every track that's in your iTunes library. And not just music, also movies and apps and everything else. It pulls these from the different locations. And this cache folder is simply so it doesn't have to read all the files again, because that's a, a time consuming and CPU intensive process. Now, whenever you have problems displaying out artwork in iTunes, it's a good idea to delete that cache folder, restart iTunes, and let iTunes recache. You, you, if you scroll through your music, you'll see that it, it's slow as it displays the artwork because it's re-extracting the artwork and building a new cache. There'll be a link in the show notes with an article on my website explaining how to do this. That's a great tip that really works. I had a bunch of files that I generated myself in Logic and imported into iTunes, and they didn't have artwork. But iTunes invariably assigned the Abbey Road album cover to each and every one of them. And uh, I, I dumped the uh, cache folder, and that cleaned it right up. Um, we've got some Apple scripts to talk about that uh, are available on my site that will definitely help you manage your artwork. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. I've told you before about Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba. If you do any kind of audio recording on your Mac, it's indispensable. But if the kind of recording you do is a podcast or a podcast-like production, let me tell you about another Rogue Amoeba product called Loopback. Now, you may have heard of Loopback, but maybe aren't sure what it does, and I have to admit I was once in that category. So here's just one problem that Loopback solves. You're recording yourself on mic and a guest over Skype, and you want to play actualities or music cues or some other kind of soundbite during the recording. Well, using Loopback, you can create virtual audio devices for iTunes or QuickTime or any audio software source. So you can play audio from them, mixing it live while you're recording. And both you and your guest will be able to hear it. And the audio from Loopback goes directly to the recording mix. Now, I've done some pretty complex mixing and wiring in the analog world, but something like Getting digital audio from different apps on your machine, it is impossible without Loopback. Loopback is like having a mixing board on your computer where audio applications and devices are your sources and the output is your recording. It helps you create amazingly robust recordings for podcasts, radio broadcasts, presentations, what have you. Like I always say, when I ask myself, how am I going to record this? The answer is always a solution from Rogue Amoeba. And this time, Loopback is the answer. Now, Loopback assists with lots of other audio situations, so you should definitely check it out. And when you do, use the coupon code NEXTTRACK, that's one word, to save 20% on your purchase of Loopback. So, yes, download the demo from rogueamoeba.com, try it out on your setup, and then save 20% with the coupon code NEXTTRACK. That's no spaces, two T's in the middle. Loopback from Rogue Amoeba, rogueamoeba.com. Okay, so you've got a number of Apple scripts that work with artwork. Well, we were just talking about embedded artwork, and it's difficult to determine if an audio file actually has image data in its metadata. And like I kind of insinuated earlier, just because you see artwork in a track in iTunes 
doesn't mean that the tracks file has embedded artwork. And you can't tell by looking at the file in the finder because it's no guarantee that the file's icon or its preview has its embedded artwork either. So short of using an app that can read the actual metadata from the file, you can use the script is artwork embedded. You select a single track, launch the script, and if image data is found in the file, it will display it. If it's not found, it will report that too. One that I found very useful a few years ago was to create a playlist of all my tracks that didn't have embedded artwork. Right. You used tracks without embedded artwork to playlist. Like the script I just talked about that does spot checking, this scans your entire library and corrals all the tracks whose files don't have embedded metadata into a discrete playlist so you can decide what to do with it. If you're using the tracks and files from iTunes in an application outside of the iTunes ecosystem, uh, you want to make sure that the artwork stays with it. And this is the way you would find out which files and which tracks in iTunes don't have that embedded artwork. Or if you want to move it into a different app and you want to see the artwork. Because one of the things is that even if the artwork isn't embedded, Apple's apps know where it is. And when you sync your music to an iOS device, it will copy the artwork in a, in a way, in a sort of auxiliary folder on the iOS device. So it will display, but it still might not be embedded in the files. Yeah, it seems to me the thing is, is that iTunes handles the audio and the artwork separately as separate files. So it doesn't care if the if the file has embedded artwork or not, because it manages the artwork files separately. Right. And so you have another Apple script for that, which embeds the artwork in the files. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it's not always a guarantee that the track artwork you see in iTunes is in the metadata for the file of that track. So this script, it's called re-embed artwork, will go through a, a selected batch of tracks, get their iTunes assigned artwork and compel iTunes to embed it in the tracks file. Now this script doesn't pull in artwork from some other location. The artwork already has to be assigned to the track in iTunes. Which is what we described earlier when you drag artwork into the info window and press OK, and then iTunes writes it into the file itself. We hope. Now I've got another script that kind of combines all of the features of the scripts I've just talked about. It's called CoverScope. And what it does is it will float above iTunes as you use it. And as you select a track, it will show two artwork wells. It will show the tracks assigned artwork, and if that tracks file has artwork, it will also show that. So you see them side by side, and you could determine right away whether or not a track has embedded artwork. And with CoverScope, you can press a button right on the screen and embed the artwork that you see in iTunes to the tracks file. And vice versa, if the track doesn't have assigned artwork yet has metadata, you can apply the metadata image back to the track. So we spoke earlier about the size of artwork. I said I use 600 pixels. Some people might want less. Some people might want more. You've got a great script for that called Reapply Downsized Artwork. I remember I used that some years ago when I decided on 600 pixels, and I checked everything that was bigger than that, and I used the script to basically shrink all this artwork and save a lot of space in my library. Right. You used it to uh, work on a batch of tracks to downscale the artwork to your preferred size of 600. Anything less than 600 would be unaffected, but it's just the larger artwork would be reduced. It also allows you to work on individual tracks one at a time, so you can examine each track's artwork and decide whether you want to shrink it or not. 
You can also add padding to make it square. Uh, you can preview the artwork proportionately. You can also export the artwork to a file. And of course, uh, as you apply the, the new resized artwork, it will embed it into the file's metadata. And for those who want to find artwork, you have a script called Find Artwork with Google, which, what does it do? Just basically a Google search for the song, album, and artist? Yes, it grabs the name and the album and the artist of the selected track. And then that's the basis of a Google image search. And you'll get all kinds of things that pop up. And hopefully it's the right album. If you want to get a little more specific, I do have a couple of scripts. You know, back in the day when they first introduced album artwork years ago, I had a lot more of these scripts because there were a lot of sites that provided album artwork, but a lot of them are gone. Two of them that are still around are CD Universe and Sloth Radio, and there are two scripts for those. CD Universe does not have the best-sized artwork, but Sloth Radio has some pretty large-sized artwork of very good quality, so I'd recommend using those as well. Now, when you find artwork in a browser, the way to add it to iTunes is you can select the image that you see in the browser and right-click on it and choose Copy Image. That puts it in the clipboard, and then you go back over to iTunes and paste it where you need it. Or you can drag the image from the web browser directly to the Get Info window in iTunes to apply the artwork. The thing about getting artwork from the internet is you don't know where it's been. It could introduce an element of corruption into iTunes, so I would be really careful about uh, getting artwork from anywhere. Yeah, and, and you'll find artwork that people have scanned, and some of them are good scans and some of them are bad. And if you have no other choice and you don't want to scan the artwork yourself, I used to do that for some of my classical albums. I would scan it myself, and it's really time-consuming. You've got to scan it, and then you've got to straighten it out because it's never perfectly straight. Then you've got to crop it and reduce it. And, you know, it's a few minutes to do that. So Yeah, but you know what? There are people that really really live for that. Yeah, I never did. So just an example, I have a, a few box sets of Leonard Bernstein's recordings on Sony and Deutsche gramophones. So it's symphonies and it's concertos. And when I got the first box set, I said, okay, I'm going to scan each separate sleeve with each CD because each one had the name of the works on it. And by the time I got to the end of the first box set, I said, nope, I'm just going to find the artwork for the box set and put it for all of them because it really doesn't make that much of a difference. See, that's like my argument for being indifferent about artwork. It's a, it just becomes a chore. Or you go in the other direction and you really start obsessing because once you realize you can add more than one artwork to a track, you start adding the back cover and the liner notes and you know, you start doing stuff like that. And you can't, it's not like you can look at it very easily. You have to go into the Get Info window and look at it and scroll through it. So. Yes, but remember the good old days when there used to be a little artwork viewer at the bottom of the sidebar on the left of iTunes. Right. And it, and it had the little arrow buttons on top of it. So if you had multiple artwork, you could click through it there. Oh, yeah. There was a big fuss when they pulled that out. Yeah. That was, uh, that, was, that was a great feature of iTunes. Yeah, it was. I never applied multiple artwork, but I could understand that some people might want, say, the front and the back of a CD. Knock yourself out. So we've talked about how to get artwork into iTunes and how to manipulate artwork once it's there. You may also want to export track artwork as a file for archiving purposes or because you use another player that needs a separate image file. First, there's save album artwork to album folder. This will export the artwork of the selected tracks or the tracks in a selected playlist as an image file, PNG or JPEG to the folder which contains each selected tracks file. Now, presumably, that's the tracks album folder. Or you can export image files as a batch to a single selected folder. 
If multiple album tracks are selected, don't worry, the script will make sure only one artwork image per album is exported, so if the album has 12 tracks, you won't get 12 image files. Along the same lines is Save Album Artwork as Folder JPEG. This exports a JPEG image file to the album folder, just like the script I just talked about, but it names the image file Folder JPEG. Some audio players don't look for album artwork in the audio file's metadata. They require a separate image file per album folder named Folder JPEG, or sometimes Cover JPEG or Album JPEG. Whatever, you can enter the name you need to use for the image file. Sonos, I believe, recognizes a Folder JPEG in the album folder. And finally, Restore Artwork from Album Folder. This will look into the album folders of each of the selected tracks looking for any image file, ostensibly one you put there using one of the two scripts I've talked about, and then it will reassign that to the selected tracks. So this would be used if you had archived artwork into the album folders and you want to make sure your artwork gets reassigned after pulling it in from a backup or something like that. So a lot of stuff for artwork. There's a whole managing artwork section at my site, dougscripts.com. I hope you check it out. So artwork is interesting. You may be artwork obsessed like I am and less artwork obsessed like Doug. You may want to scan your own albums and you may actually even be scanning LPs if you're ripping your own LPs to have them. You know, maybe things that don't even exist digitally anymore. It all depends on the way you use your music library, the way you identify with your music. You may find the best way to find your music is a text-based list, maybe the column browser. You may find that you want the album view very big so you can see exactly what they are. You remember that this album's red and this one's blue, and you have all these options. It is a bit of a hassle to deal with album artwork for anything that you don't buy digitally or anything that's not on the iTunes store or in other places. But you have the option to add any kind of artwork, even if it's not the artwork for the album. You may want to add an artist photo or something else if you can't find the artwork. So enjoy going through your iTunes library now with Doug's scripts and re-embedding artwork and checking the size and all that. And don't spend too much time. You're probably better off just listening to the music. Before we present our next tracks, we want to thank Rogue Amoeba for sponsoring this episode. They are the makers of Loopback that puts the power of a high-end studio mixing board right inside your computer. And remember that you can save 20% on a license for Loopback with this coupon code, NEXTTRACK. Kirk, what is your next track? My next track this week is a piece of music by Morton Feldman. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned him in the past. I call him a minimalist composer, though he's not the minimalist repetitive composer like Steve Reich or Philip Glass. He's minimalist in the fact that his music has very little meat in it. It's generally very quiet with very short phrases, and it's one or two instruments. He never wrote any symphonies. He's written string quartets and other ensemble pieces. And Hyperion Records in the UK has just released on the day we recorded a new recording of For Bunita Marcus by Marc-André Amelin on piano. It is a 72-minute piece where you get all these little phrases that come and go. And as the description of the album says, they, the notes coalesce into wisps of melody, which drift softly in and out of in immense silence. It, it's a fascinating piece of music. Um, I've actually had this recording for some time. I know the people at Hyperion, and they sent it to me because they know I really love this music. And this is the best recording I've heard yet of this piece. 
If you've never heard Morton Feldman, by all means, check this out. Now, you can't stream this. Hyperion doesn't stream. So you're going to have to buy it by download or on CD. He's one of the most fascinating composers I know. In a few weeks, we're going to have someone who runs a record label who's published a lot of music by Morton Feldman. My only criticism of this record is the liner notes where he gets all Twilight Zone and he talks about like an alternate reality in fourth dimension. And I think sometimes you shouldn't let the artist write the liner notes, but the music is great. The recording is great. So it's called For Bunita Marcus by Morton Feldman on Hyperion Records. What about you, Doug? My next track is the latest album from Dan Baird called So Low. It came out earlier this year. Dan Baird was in the Georgia Satellites back in the day, whom I didn't really care for at the time. But his first solo album back in the early 90s called Love Songs for the Hearing Impaired just knocked me out the first time I heard it, and I've been a fan ever since. Dan Baird writes incredibly cool songs, great lyrics, really. He has this wicked smart hillbilly take on things, and he's he's a really good storyteller, very interesting, humorous, colorful characters in his songs. He has a very Nashville lyric writing style with a lot of clever turns of phrase. And I think he's one of the best American or at least Americana singer-songwriters there is. And so all of this is set to that southern rock and roll, two guitars, bass, and drums. It's closing time. Here's our last song, and the joint was a rockin' kind of sound. Great, great guitar stuff. Anyway, this new album, So Low, S-O-L-O-W, is a solo album in that he plays all the instruments but the drums, which are handled by Brad Pemberton, he's played with Ryan Adams and Steve Earle that I know of. So this is the first time Dan's done a, a solo album solo, I believe. And at first I thought it would be kind of gimmicky, you know, because unless you're Stevie Wonder or Prince or Todd Rundgren, these kinds of projects can kind of go south pretty quickly. And because the musicians he usually plays with, like his band Homemade Sin, they are a really great band. In fact, Dan Baird and Homemade Sin have recently released a, a new album. But solo is a Dan Barrett album, and it sounds pretty good. I haven't heard the whole album yet, but the two or three tracks I have listened to so far, very encouraging. And the album cover is tinted all blue, so album art-wise, pretty easy to pick out in a lineup. Another good thing going for it, I suppose. Now, here's a shocker I just found out the other day, that Dan is currently undergoing medical treatment for leukemia. In fact, he had to cancel all tour dates for the rest of the year to get this looked at. So here's hoping he pulls through okay. Dan Baird, Solo, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.